Today, I am delighted to be joined by Liz Robinson. She was at 29, the youngest head teacher in England. She took on what was a pretty rough inner city school, in fact, and is still in a rough inner city area, but is now a fantastic school 10 years later. She's done it in a remarkable way. She's thrown away the rule book, so it's a school with no rules. It's all values-based, and, and we'll get into some of the discussion of the values. She's created personas for those values to bring them to life. I first met her uh, about six months ago when I visited the school. I spent some time with the teachers and the parents and the children, and I was just absolutely blown away with how positive and amazing the pupils and the teachers and parents were given its location in a very challenging environment in inner city London. Let's get on and talk to Liz. Hi, my name is Liz Robinson and I'm the erstwhile head teacher of Surrey Square Primary School up until very recently, but I've just started a new role with a new organisation we formed which is called Big Education which is a coming together of three schools and um, we're on a mission to change the education system. Okay, that's not a small goal. What? <laughs> it's not. Clues in the name, big education. Yeah. Um, what is your BHAG then for this organisation? Like in 10 to 25 years time, what, what might you have achieved? We want to empower teachers and leaders and future leaders, aspiring head teachers, to be asking bigger questions about what education, what school should or could be mm-hmm. for. So we believe a big education has three critical components. We talk about an education of the head, the heart and the hand. So uh, we accept that, of course, academic, traditional learning in schools is important, learning of the head. But we believe that education of the heart, in other words, our emotional development, how we conduct ourselves, our relationships and the hand skill, being able to um, make things and do things and get on with people and solve problems are equally important and that our school system at the moment is overly focused on the former in terms of the head and the academic outcomes and there is a huge deficit in the breadth of skills and competences that people actually need and the workplace employers tell us that that there's a huge deficit in those skills coming through. Give me an example of that latter skill then that you would hope to deliver that employers are saying is lacking? I think a great example is um, how we teach children to write, for example. So mm-hmm. classically in schools, you do a piece of writing and you do it for your teacher and your teacher gives you some feedback and you have one stab at it. You might go back and create some spellings. Now, you arrive, we're creating a document for any purpose, really, um, that's a piece of clash for an organisation or a pitch or you know, even a, you know, a stakeholder engagement piece. That's likely to go through several iterations. It's also likely to go through a socialisation process. Um, You're going to get feedback from all sorts of different people on it. um, And you're going to spend quite a bit of time going back to it and editing it and rewriting it and changing it. So the process of producing a real artefact or a piece of work for a particular purpose in the world of work, we don't prepare young people sufficiently well to actually engage with that. So likewise, doing a piece of work um, any piece of work is a social experience. You know, we work in teams mm-hmm. and we have to negotiate, we have to deal with conflict, we have to um, have ideas. People want creativity, people want people to think for themselves, take initiative, be proactive. And 
too often what we have in schools is actually the absolute explicit opposite of that, mm-hmm. in that we're teaching children to be compliant, to listen, to receive wisdom, to receive knowledge of what has been, and actually not to actively engage with it as constructive partners in developing something new or finding their own voice and connection with that information. Aha, uh-huh. so more agile, more Wikipedia than handing in just a piece of homework. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a kind of hot debate in education about about the Google effect and do we need to teach children knowledge when they can Google it and find it out? I mean, that's why our the tripartite head, heart and hand is so important because I do think it's really important that students have or young people have enough knowledge to be able to navigate the world because actually critical literacy, being able to understand information, to curate information and make decisions about what information is true and what meaning you make from different information are are complex and important skills and that is not devoid of knowledge Mm -hmm. in order to do that. You need some kind of cornerstones in order to help you navigate that. So it's not devoid of knowledge in our view, a big education, but it's, there's an overemphasis on it. There's a narrowing to the extent that that's become slightly fetishised as an end in itself. Aha, uh-huh. so not learning things? Not learning things. Fundamentally, it is about learning knowledge and gaining knowledge about things. So mm-hmm. it's partly about how we do that. So how do we get there? What's the process we go through? Do I, am I a passive consumer of knowledge you're teaching me? in a sort of didactic way of teacher at the front, and I, as a student and passive in that process, you're telling me things and I'm making notes or I'm regurgitating that in an essay or in a test. Uh Or am I an active agent in my own learning, an active participant in the learning process, whereby I, as the teacher, may have an end that I, I need the students to learn this amount of content, but actually the process they go through to learn that it enhances what they learn so that a they have a different relationship with the knowledge in that they've discovered that themselves or they've they're learning it for a purpose but the, what they've learned along the way is a bunch of other skills which yes. might be about problem solving it might be about collaboration it might be through multiple drafts and iterations of gaining feedback and finding it difficult and having to kind of show the grit to carry on even when you're finding something really difficult um, so there's there's a huge enhancement to the learning experience from simply being told it by a teacher and learning it as a fact. Or reading it in a book. Or yes. reading it from a book. Now, I, comp- I was struggling to see how, it, how that would work in school, but once I stopped worrying about that and just thought about what I do as a business coach, look, that's exactly what I do. Okay. People, they can read the book, but often that doesn't... is isn't enough. It, well, it's just, there's the actually taking people through the exercise and mm. then getting to the point mm. where they go, aha. But it's interesting thinking from sort of organisational learning point of view in the 70-20-10 idea of how adults learn. Of you know, 10% is the taught content, the 20% is the socialisation, social learning and networking, and 70% is learning on the job and reflecting on what you're doing in your core job. Now, that model is not remotely applied in most schools where it's largely 100% of what we would consider as adults the 10% in yes. terms of direct instruction, reading a book, being told something by somebody or in a training course. So we kind of know in the adult world actually how we learn is through, um, and you make your living, I guess, as a business coach, through helping people reflect on and think about what they're actually doing in their daily work and not just in the abstract. That's right. Actually taking them out of their daily work to give them the opportunity to reflect often. Exactly. So that they can think about what's working and what's not working and how could they do, mm-hmm. how could they practice some skills and then they go away and try it and implement yeah. it and they come back and reflect on it again. And it can take two years. 
eight quarters of practice before people go, oh, now I realize where I am in the journey and how far actually there is still to go, as opposed to I've read the book and I've done it and we're on to a different idea tomorrow. Exactly. So what that looks like in, in our schools is, as an example, a kind of project-based approach to learning, an interdisciplinary, contextualised approach to learning. So what that might look like is if I'm learning about a recent project at Surrey Square, am I learning in geography about um, and, and science about emissions from cars and the social kind of geography of living in a city and transport infrastructure in the abstract through doing something in my classroom? Or am I actually an active participant in a campaign, as our, recently our Year 4 students were, making placards, understanding the rationale and the reason behind their campaign and actually taking that campaign to the town hall to talk to the politicians about emissions because our school is situated in an area of very high emission, car emission zone and seeking to do something about that. Ha, huh. OK. Totally different to what mm. I did when... Um, year four, how old are people in year four? Eight. Eight. Eight or nine. Fab. Yeah. And likewise at School 21, which is another one of our three schools, the notion of work experience and how do we actually learn about the world of work. Traditionally in a secondary school, that looks like a week or two weeks of experience with, and there's a whole other issue there about kind of social justice, which is that it tends to be who, who, who does mummy and daddy know and where can you or your family members and so on, where can you get work experience? And if the better your networks, the better the kind of experiences and opportunities you get, which obviously is reflected later on in life in interns, internships, which has been a lot of sort of chatter about in, in, mm-hmm. in the education sphere in terms of equality. But even if you take that out, you know, two weeks of going and shadowing somebody where you often end up doing menial stuff or just watching people in a passive way do what they do has a limited impact. School 21 has taken the view that actually meaningful engagement in a piece of work and doing a piece of work within, within that placement is the kind of experience that young people need. So they, throughout year 10 and 11, so GCSE years, students actually only take G- eight GCSEs. Many schools will do more than that. Yeah. Because in the place of, one, of a ninth GCSE, they do a year-long work placement. So the school is connected with hundreds of employers and the students go in small groups and they do a year-long placement in a business with a real problem to solve. And some of the things they've done have been quite extraordinary, including for a, a major um, high street um, food chain, they redesigned the children's menu from first principles, working with the cooks around costing, branding, the whole piece, and obviously the kind of appeal of it and the, you know, the brand and the kind of marketing of it. And they, they actually did that piece of work in terms of the difference in that experience and equipping young people with the skills, the confidence, the experience to actually think about the world of work, whether they're going into that world, that workplace at 16 or 18 or as a graduate, their experience of the skills you actually need is of a different order. Yes, and long enough to get build relationships with some of those adults in that workplace to go, I want to do this job or I don't want to do your right. job. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Fab. Can I take you back to when you started at Surrey Square? What was it like? Why did you go there? What was this challenge? Because you've been there 12 years? Yeah, I was there for 12 years. And I, I went there um, 2006. I was 29. I was the youngest head teacher in the country at the time. And um, Surrey Square was, frankly, a really horrible place at the time. And did... <laughs> 
<laughs> Did you get it because nobody else wanted it? Well, you could, Dom, you could say that. They had already gone out to advert twice. I was the third round and there was two candidates and I knew the other one wasn't going to get it. So I did have a moment on the interview day, of, I still remember that, standing up in one of the top classrooms looking out and thinking, I'm, I think they're going to offer you this, Liz. Are you going to do this? Is this it? Are you going to take this on? Because it is, um, it's on the Ellsbury Estate. It's in an area of very high social challenge, very, very complex and difficult issues within the community. It is an interesting place because when I came to visit you, the taxi driver turned to me and said, are you sure this is where you want to get out of this cab? So it's not... Yeah, there's not, a lot of It's not suburbia. There. No, it's not suburbia. And you know, I'm always conscious, talking in public, as the effect this is public, about the community and, you know, the last thing that school community needs is that, you know, their head teacher or former head teacher going on about how rubbish their area is. So I'm always really kind of conscious to find that balance, that these are people, that's just people's lives and... Anything I say needs to feel comfortable. Any one of our parents listening to, and, sure. and they would they would acknowledge that there are there are a lot of issues that impact on the children's lives quite seriously, ranging from real poverty, the likes of which one is shocked still exists in the UK um, in 2018, um, through immigration, domestic violence, substance misuse, gangs, violence. It really is proper inner city challenges. So I went there. As the head teacher, having been on a, I was on an accelerated leadership course within education. It was a time of, there was a realisation within the sector that we didn't have enough head teachers and there was a sort of real push to encourage people who had the potential and wanted to do that to step into headship. So I'd had kind of quite a bit of leadership support and coaching mm-hmm. and so on, geeing me along the way. And I felt very passionately, I've, I've always worked in schools in tough parts of town and I just I really wanted to be a head teacher I felt passionately about the difference that schools can make as I felt I still feel that I think schools are the best chance we've got in society of making a difference Mm -hmm. because they're they're universal everybody's there and you've got the children there 190 days a year and you can make a massive difference particularly in primary schools when you've got the family so engaged as well so I was very zealous about the difference I wanted to make and yeah, I started on day one. I remember very vividly, my, I had this little office. My predecessor had had dogs. So it was stank and it was disgusting. So me and my friend literally in the holidays came in and painted it myself. Because at that time I hadn't quite mobilised, you know, how to get people to do stuff for me. And I had a new desk from Ikea and a pot plant. And I sort of felt like a fresher rather uh-huh. than a head teacher. That was my, my sort of initial feeling is, am I really, is, is this real? Yeah. And how were the other staff members when you arrived? I was preoccupied with how young I was. And I think they were preoccupied by it for about 10 minutes. And then I was just the head teacher. Okay. I'd say it, it changed really quickly. So I, it took me longer to get over my preoccupation about it. But very, very quickly, I was the head teacher. So it was kind of... They, they might have said things behind my back or whatever, but the, I, I kind of, my, my comeback, my adage was, it's not how old you are, it's how good you are. Which yeah. is sort of, you know, it's not how big it is what we do with it, isn't it? Yeah. A bit like that. But, so I, I kind of really put my energy into focusing on being really good and doing a great job and building my credibility that way, really, and not worrying about it too much. And so what did you see as your, what's the biggest challenge you had to... Was it something you did in the first week or first month, first year? What was the? 
the biggest challenge, I don't know if it's possible to think of it as, as one thing. Well, some, some, a fellow head teacher me said to me early on, he said, the thing you've got to do is you've got to do the short term and the middle term and the long term all at the same time and all really well. It's like, okay, great, thanks. <laughs> but actually, it's kind of in one way blindingly obvious but also true so the kind of immediacy of dealing with a school which was pretty dysfunctional behavior of students and adults was very very difficult and there was a lot of violence there was a lot of disorder a lot of defiance that's just the adults no no it was most of the children but there, there, we did have we did have physical incidents we still do occasionally with parents so there was a lot of very immediate how you're going to deal with this uh-huh. kind of stuff um, and then the medium term of, okay, I can see these teachers, we're going to have some tough conversations and maybe you're not going to be here in September, so we need some new teachers. So you're kind of immediately thinking about you know, recruitment, building a team, um, in that sort of medium term vision. And then the longer term, the building was in a pretty poor state, needed masses of investment, didn't have enough space, we needed new buildings. So the kind of longer term from the word go, I had the architects in doing some visionary work about what we could achieve with the site and with no, no money when the base is on this, but kind of you've got to have yeah. the dream, you've got to have the plan. So that kind of short term, medium, long term in, in, in an overview is a way of so you, thinking about so it. So you created a vision for the school, got the architects in, did, what did you do? Did you pay some people or did you say... You're going to have to do this for nothing because I've got no, no money. No, I did. I did pay the architects yeah. to start off with. Yeah, I sort of thought this is an investment. We've got a, and which, then... which in, in retrospect, you know, it was very brave of me and it was very bold at a time when, frankly, I couldn't have a meeting with the architect for more than twenty minutes without kind of being called to go and break up a fight. So, <laughs> and I'm not. I'm really not joking. So it, it was. It was kind of mad, but. It's also very easy to retrofit what I did with nice leadership and management models, which at the time it was not. It wasn't necessarily planned like that. It was instinct. Yeah, but that's you know there you are, first time as a head teacher, and you're already, I suppose, not following the norm or mm. not doing what other people would do. You're doing things differently, yeah. doing them your way, which I guess is why you wanted to be a head teacher because yeah. you thought I could do it better than other people. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you created a vision. And yeah, so, that, so you can retrofit yeah. that to a management model yeah. and say, look, without a vision, you can't have people follow you. That's and true. Even if it's instinctual, it's still something that you yeah. did and sold that vision to the local authority so that you get ended with some money to yeah, build I mean, the school the, in your the, image. The two big building chunks that we did, one was, it wasn't really council, but it was, it was a persuasion piece, but it was a grant body um, and New Deals for Communities, which was new labour pots of money in the most deprived communities. So there was, so yeah, but it was a piece of persuasion. And, and, and you had to have a vision, otherwise yeah, absolutely. you weren't going to get any yeah, money. Uh, yeah, um, and yeah. Um, the other thing you mentioned was getting the right people on the bus. And so in hindsight, what proportion of the problems that the school faced at the time was down to having the wrong people teaching? Actually, not that much. Okay. And I'm really proud of the fact that quite a lot of the teachers who were there on that first day teaching in classes um, are still at the school. One of the assistant heads, you know, in senior role was in class, not enjoying it and not doing a massively great job, she'd say that herself. So I'm, it wasn't a kind of go in and sweep out and bring in all my new shiny people. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm a massive believer in you change the context, change the behaviour mm-hmm. for adults and for children in our context and and I'm a huge believer in coaching and 
being developmental with people and taking people on journey. Now, some people can't or won't go on that journey. I think the can'ts are a matter of mindset. So that's where the clarity of the vision is so important. Mm -hmm. that if you're clear on what it means to be part of this organisation, that's a differentiator. Are you on this journey with us or not? Does it get you excited? Do you jump out of bed in the morning? Or, yeah, absolutely. or doesn't it? Are you on the bus? Is it a job? Yeah. 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 And I, I, mean, I haven't really talked about this at all yet, but the, the values for us were our primary vehicle for doing that. So I introduced values. Literally, I wrote them on pieces of card and stuck them on my wall of my IKEA, you know, freshers office. Initially, they were my values. And I, start, I used them initially just as a way of introducing myself, articulating to everybody who I was and what I was about, talk to the children about them in assembly, you know, and what happened was that certain teachers started saying, oh, can we have them? Can we have them in our classroom? And I said, of course you can. They're just words written on a piece of card, you know. Yes. And so we got the kind of early adopters. And again, I can retrofit the change model to that. And then the next big inset day, we were all, all together as a team. We did the values piece as a whole school. So those were my values. So actually, what are our values as an organisation? And from that point on, there was a massive coming together of energy um, and they have become the single biggest defining feature of the school and have evolved and evolved evolved over the years to the extent that we now have these wonderful characters so perseverance for example is percy percy perseverance you know who has a whole story and he's a character and he has a, a presence in the school where he's a puppet you know he's there and percy is part of surrey square just which, in yeah. which is the bald one the bald one. Do you mean Kofi? It's probably Kofi Compassion, I think. Yes, because when yeah. I visited you, I had one of those stickers on my laptop and oh. I came home and my daughter said, Dad, why have you got a sticker, sticker. of you on your laptop? <laughs> um, <laughs> but the, going back to the, the values that you wrote on your office wall, how many yeah. did you write then? I think I had six at the very beginning. And you've now got seven, but you went yeah. through a journey of yeah. five to so seven. But, the... but are they... Were the five that you that you end up with as the school were they different to yours? Did you yeah, you I, gave I, up on them and just some, no some of them some of them were different and that was important that I was very clear at the beginning these are my I mean I'm not saying they were like my they were the values I'd come up with to, for that end and it felt important that the school it was a genuine process when we did that that these are the school's values and they yeah. may be slightly different to mine if there'd been something in that mix that I vehemently didn't agree with. You know, but that was the point of that day of kind of challenging that. But generally, my experience of doing stuff with values is there's slightly different nuance, there's slightly different take on it. But you end up so I think the ones that were caught, I'm sure, responsibility and respect were both in there, yeah. Um, which are both still in there, and I think success there was something we call that excellence now, but there was something about kind of achievement and. So out of the day when you sort of went through that, it sounds to me as though that learning experience or that thing you did as a group is exactly what you're talking about wanting as big education to have children go through right you know and you co-created something yeah and you know as long as the essence of it's there you're not too Absolutely. worried about the words but what perseverance what were the five values that you my have? my personal ones no, no, that, 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 now well because you've you've only recently gone to seven haven't you so well, no we were six so we, okay. but we, no so um the original six were community so we have cold community mm -hmm. um joy enjoyment enjoyment's always been in there we are a school enjoyment's really important people are always shocked by that one it's just scary isn't it that you should enjoy enjoyment should be 190 how many days a year 100 190 190 yes you'd yeah. want to 
you'd want to enjoy you'd them. You'd want to enjoy them. Uh, responsibility, so that's RAFA responsibility, uh, RIRI respects. We had success, as I mentioned, which now has become excellence. We have Ebby and Effie are the excellence twins. Uh-huh. I've missed one. I don't think I've said compassion, so co- um, Kofi compassion. Right. Who was your, your friend? <laughs> and the last one is... That's embarrassing, isn't it? Because I can't have now lost track of what I want to. <laughs> um, I'll have to think about which one I've forgotten. Have we said cold community? I don't think we said cold community. Okay. So, yeah. So they, they tweaked slightly. I think it was Percy Perseverance. So we added in Percy Perseverance about five years ago and changed success to excellence because right. excellence was a more expansive definition rather than success sounds a bit... Binary. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you could you could try to be excellent and yeah. not. Succeed. And you can have excellence yeah. in anything. Yeah, yeah. So you can have excellence in attitude or in diligence and grit and perseverance in trying. And you've got these values instead of, or as a replacement of school rules. That's so right. you're a school with no rules. We are a school with no rules. Um, and what's that about? That's about inside out rather than outside in. This is summed up in a in a story. An absolutely true story, but I, I do have a reputation for telling this story, so it's amusing that, of course, I'm telling it to you. Very early on, a teaching assistant brought a child into my office, kind of by the ear. I don't think it can have been literally, because I've had to have sort of done a disciplinary process, but she sort of chucked this child into my office and snarled, this child doesn't know how to behave. And it was one of those moments when it was a real penny-dropping moment, and I thought two things, and one of which was, uh, no, you're absolutely right, and nor do you, because that's not how we're going to talk to or about children anymore in this building, mm-hmm. as if they're a piece of unspeakable on your shoe. And the second thought was, oh, you're absolutely right, he doesn't know how to behave. And you are judging and criticising him and expecting me to punish him at a point when, in a way that is totally at odds with uh, how we would behave if a child doesn't know how to read. The notion that someone would bring, even the most grumpy teaching assistant would bring in a teacher and say, this child doesn't know how to read. It just would never happen, okay? Because we understand our job as a school is to help children learn how to read. And if they're finding it difficult, all that means is we have to try harder. Mm -hmm. And we bring all of our professional skill, our diligence, our love and our commitment to help that child learn to read. We don't necessarily bring that same set of skills to bear if they don't know how to behave we just expect them to know how to do it even if they've come from the most dysfunctional and deprived families in the country so that was the kind of real light bulb of actually we need to flip that because actually we have to see that it is our job to teach them how to behave so what does that mean if we want to teach them how to behave how on earth do we teach them how to behave how do we take that seriously so we we now talk about um the mission statement of the school is personal and academic excellence, everyone, every day. So personal and academic excellence, everyone, every day. So personal excellence is, our, if you like, our curriculum. And the values are the, the methodology we have for teaching personal excellence in the school. So to show personal excellence is to embody those values. Mm-hmm. So to go back to your point about there are no rules, no, there are no rules because a rule, a rule sits un, is a behavioural descriptor that sits underneath a value. Yeah. Okay, so to walk quietly in the corridor is a subsection of respect yep. because to show respect or responsibility you move around the building safely and calmly so you don't disturb anybody else that's part of how you would show responsibility in your actions so why would we make a rule that's kind of a subset of a greater aspiration which is our value to embody those things so what it means is that the child has to work harder 
um, and they have to think more and they have to make choices and own their choices and their decision making about how they behave and we as adults our job is to facilitate a conversation with them and to support their thinking so that it enables them to make better choices or to make choices about their behavior within a framework. I mean it's the same to me you're describing the distinction between I suppose principle and policy mm-hmm. in lots of organizations mm-hmm. where people have a rule which says where thou shalt not often written because one somebody's or, done it one or two percent of the population <laughs> yeah. transgressed yeah so somebody with rulemaking capability wrote one but people can't remember why often nobody remembers right. the transgression or why people just think this rule is stupid it doesn't make mm. any sense mm. but there's no there's no mechanism to change it and so these bureaucracy gets born mm. and things get mm. organizations get stifled but that whole learning in a school way you have they, your your pupils might find their working lives you might have spoilt them. I don't mean that in a bad way, of course. But they might all go to organisations where it's command and control. And instead of having gone through school socialising mm. that being told to do stupid things is just how life is, mm. they, well, they won't work there, will they? Mm. They'll go and get a job somewhere else where it's yeah. more... Um, well, they'll run them and change them. Yeah, totally. But I, I, I see all the time organisations, in organisations I've run myself, they, we've created an alias called Stupid Rules At, and it came to me and... I did it with a small group in the UK and got sort of 35, all of which were mm. easily changed by the people mm. who'd suggested them as I a stupid that. rule. I love that. I did it with a larger team in the US and got 350, which turned into 19 projects in about three months. Mm. But over time, we just had this, people were wandering around with sand in their shoes, this thing that they just thought mm. was stupid and made no mm. sense. And there was no context for people to challenge or, mm. or to change the rules. They just are deemed to be. Yeah. And what you're saying is you've got a, a set of principles which the children learn early and whenever they're faced with a should I, shouldn't I, can I, can't I, they can work it out because mm. they get it wrong. Of course they do. It's of fine. course they do. And we've got a whole kind of set of behaviours and processes that support that when children find it, you know, make the wrong choice or find it difficult to make the right choices as a whole kind of methodology around how we do that because it's just it goes back to the same thing if they if you you relate it to reading if they're finding their phonics difficult or they're finding you know their handwriting difficult well you're going to do something else aren't you going to find another way and you're going to keep at it to define a way that works for them and some of those norms of behavior are home-based coming to school so do you find yourself in conflict with parents occasionally yeah we do find ourselves in conflict with parents i mean we we don't seek to be in conflict and we're always wanting to work with parents so the values go beyond the school gates undoubtedly and parents are the best advocates for talking about the power of the values because they will talk to you about how they use them at home and how the kids use them with them and they'll say oh but you know she encourages me she says you mummy you should show percy perseverance don't give up because you can give it a go you know so it's kind of they have there's all these joyful stories about how they go home and you know with with anybody in the school so you know the second part of the mission statement everyone every day the, the values the personal excellence applies to everybody and it applies every day. So the everybody part is critical. It applies to us as members of staff. It applies to us as the most senior leaders. It applies to the governors. It applies to Ofsted. It applies to anybody who comes into the school. So um, respect, which is often what's needed when there's conflict or tricky situations, we will explicitly remind people about that. And even if someone's very heated, say, you know, we see you're really upset about this. Can we just remember that respect is one of our values and that we'll 
work together to try and sort this problem out and let's just try and do that in the context of respect because that, I mean, that's one, something that's really important to us so that they give you an, a way of externalising the expectation without making it personal of please don't shout at me yes um, to uh, look this is part of our school culture this is really important to us can we all please try and remember that when we when we're trying to solve this sort this situation out for example mm-hmm. um, one of the things that I was struck by when I visited you was the and I can never remember what the years are the oldest what's the oldest year year six year yeah. six felt to me is that you've got a reasonably transient population of children so you've got lots of you've got yes, new you've got, you've got yeah. new starters yeah. coming in yeah. all the time and I met some of your parents and I met some of your teachers and some of the children and I was struck by uh the guys who wear the black hoodies mm-hmm. who are the sort of playground monitors yeah yeah uh, because two things struck me one is that I was always the child being dragged into the headmistress's room by the ear and probably in my case by the ear and probably <laughs> deservedly but also there was you know every school I was at there was always fights in the playground but you don't have that you know you've actually got uh, the pupils policing the playground mm. and also spotting people who are unhappy mm. at playtime mm. So we've got the Fit Fun leaders. So the, the black hoodies, actually, are all of the older ones, are the year sixes. So that was a, a sort of pragmatic response a long time ago. We were trying to get them into uniform, and the year sixes thought they were too cool for uniform. So I thought, well, how do we, how do we get a uniform that's cool then that you want to wear? So I got them black hoodies, and it was at the kind of hugger hoodie, and it was quite, you know, David Cameron sort of quite anti-hoodies and anti-youth vibe yeah. around. So it was got a bit of reclaiming the hoodie for kind of... Yeah, so the year sixes do have their own special uniform, which is a black hoodie with school logo on. But then we do have fit fun leaders in the yeah in the playground. So student leadership is really a very powerful vehicle for both empowering those students, but they they have amazing capacity, extraordinary capacity to do things and make interventions which de-escalate things, which sort things out in a way that actually often much more effective than having adults doing it. And I was struck by the process again, going back to your vision at the beginning about getting people more involved rather than passive and what's the process to become a fit fund leader what do you have to yeah, do yeah they have to apply yeah um so a, there's a written application form and yeah the staff will make it really clear about what the expectations are there's a job description about the kind of skills that they're looking for and they have to go through an interview process yeah yeah and so it's quite a big deal and then they they have quite a lot of responsibility and they have a special outfit and they have a lot of responsibility so it's quite a serious thing and give you people to lean on in the school mm. yeah absolutely no they are the playground it just changes the dynamic massively because you, you said not only do they intervene if something's going wrong but also they make sure that if yeah, new they, starters are yeah. lonely yeah in the they corner. keep an eye on people if anyone is not stuck with someone to play with children know they can always go and ask a fit funny but they also instigate play so playing actual playing games uh-huh. that's always one of the challenges is getting kind of lunchtime adults to actually play games and instigate games, which, but of course, the student, they do that. So we have this kind of quite a lot of scaffolding to support that in different areas and different zones of different activities. But how do you actually scaffold and support the play ground, which for some students can be a very, very challenging time of the day. Yeah. A lot of children find being out in the playground, loads of noise, loads of kids, quieter kids, or, you know, can find that really not their favourite part of the day at all. So trying to really think about being inclusive and it making it work for everybody. And then the, the other group I was uh, struck with was the Year 5, who help in the, in the, play, in in the, the lunch, dinner hall. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tell me a bit more about them. Well, 
well, again, it's, it's kind of how do you empower students to be involved and take responsibility and be part of the organisation of the school as opposed to just being passive recipients. So they, they do the lunchtime jobs, not necessarily the most glamorous, but they absolutely love it. So they wipe the tables and they help with the scrapes, you know, scraping the plates and, you know, wheeling the trolley over to the kitchen for the washing up to be done and serving the salad and... They absolutely and, love it. And they volunteer to do it. And they volunteer to do it. Oh, yeah, it's a really high-status <laughs> thing to do. But again, so it's like different horses. Of course, some children wouldn't want to do that. Some children who are quite happy not to be out in the hurly-burly of the playground and kind of like being in there and being around the adults and having that kind of socialisation. Yeah, they, they really But I was it. also struck, again, how it solved a problem with, for you with the transient population or the maybe you've got somebody coming from overseas and the food that you're serving at lunchtime is foreign or maybe eating it with knives and mm. forks you know yeah. that that whole it, yeah it's much it's easier to get pass, much easier yeah. to get that from a, another, peer. a peer rather yeah. than from an adult yeah. you're going to feel yeah. less intimidated yeah, yeah absolutely absolutely it's... yeah and so when you started how in a national league table sense how yeah. how where were you we were not in a good position. At, at the bottom, at the bottom somewhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, we, the school was not doing well, really, on any measure. Um, it was a bit like Hammer House of Horrors, really. The day I got the job, I took my parents... To get to the school, you, you know, you have to sort of drive underneath some of the huge town blocks to actually get into the estate, to get into the school. So it's quite... If you're not used to being in that sort of environment, it's already quite sort of edgy. And I got the job in November, and I took them there one evening, it was, you know pitch black and it raining and there was razor wire literally along the whole of the front wall when I first started and a big double entry gate system like you have to get into a prison so it was kind of like lightning crashing you know sort of my parents say well it's lovely darling you know I think you're thinking what the hell has she done this is sort of ham- so I forgot what the question was now how bad was it how when bad you started? was it yeah so the kind of metrics I don't talk about the kind of external metrics and because it's not really what mostly interests me, because it only measures certain things. But yeah. that we do, the children do exceptionally well. So we're last year we were in the top two percent of schools for the amount of progress the children made nationally. But that's measuring English and maths core stuff. So they do exceptionally well on that. And you know, Ofsted say we're outstanding. But again, Ofsted isn't isn't why we do it. And Ofsted and those league tables only measure a small part of what I think a school should be about so it's great that we hit those measures and we should hit those measures but there's a whole bunch of other stuff that really matters to us as well i was struck by my experience of primary schools is somewhat limited but given the the sort of social deprivation that you're in the middle of how uh happy and engaged both the pupils the teachers and the parents Mm. were and you obviously speak to lots of teacher colleagues or visit lots of other schools is that mm. very different to mm. other schools in similar circumstances still yeah I mean there's lots of great schools don't get me wrong there, there are other people doing great work in great schools of course there are I think one of the things that we've worked really really hard on is the culture partly through the values but the, one of the issues we have in, across the education sector is the heavy heavy weight of accountability as judged by that very narrow set of outcomes so that weighs very heavy on us as a sector mm-hmm. and it drives um, some unintended, I mean, sort of systemically unintended, but very pervasive negative behaviour through 
leadership at all levels through local authorities and you know mats um, a sort of top-down total command and control so that can pervade in the interest of inverted commas driving up standards mm-hmm. improving standards of reading and writing and maths which is of critical of critical importance that as a sector we're, we're in danger of um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater or whatever the right metaphor is in the sense of we're, we're driving that so hard that we're we're marginalizing other things and the other things that probably would help us actually get the get the thing we we're trying to get in the first place if we gave them enough care and attention so things are being so squeezed budgets have been cut massively there is a you know the funding crisis in schools is very real and is going to get worse real-term cuts we faced real-term cuts of about eight percent in our budget so that's you know it's, that's real stuff you know there's only so many times you can kind of find efficiency savings. Mm-hmm. We're pretty efficient, actually, already. So there are a lot of external pressures, systemic pressures, and that does sadly manifest itself down to classroom level, teachers being stressed. And, you know, the, the kids who are suffering the most are the most deprived, those with SEN, those who don't fit the ones who need the most love and nurture, but the hardest work. Uh-huh. There's all sorts of shocking statistics around exclusions, you know, children being off-rolled before GCSEs because they don't count in people's figures, mm-hmm. because everyone's become so obsessed with the, those metrics. That you, it's driving a lot of... How do you manage to avoid the command and control pressure that obviously some of your colleagues in the sector yeah. are succumbing to? I mean, the bottom you're, line... You're focused yeah, on yeah. something else which gives yeah. you great results as opposed to the results and therefore it, yeah. you're able it's not to... That we're not, it's not that we don't focus on it at all. We do. The mission statement says it is personal and academic excellence. Everyone, every day. So it's about both. It's about both and it's about balance. But it's about leadership being bold enough, strong enough and clear enough about what you're doing mm-hmm. to be able to resist certain things, yep. to be able to shield the organisation from certain things, to have broad shoulders, to yeah, have that sort of deflective, protective relationship with the organisation. But we've also thought very... So, so what's happening a lot in terms of the top-down accountability is that head teachers are recreating that exactly kind of top-down command and control within the organisation because they're subject to it. And this is the irony. They, they're subject to it and they hate it and they berate it, but they just they then behave in exactly the same way. Within. So we have thought extremely carefully and totally redesigned how we think about quality assurance and how we think about professional learning and improvement uh-huh. so that teachers are totally in the driving seat of their own improvements. We call it flipped quality assurance. So the idea being that teachers own their own professional development and their own learning, and that is triangulated and supported by leaders and other colleagues in the school, but not directed by them. Right. So it's very structured, but that's so culturally, that's a really big thing. So when I'm thinking about my own performance as a teacher, the first person who gets to make a comment about my practice is myself. And I get to share my own reflections with other people and they then triangulate and see, do I agree with that reflection? Yeah. Or have I got anything else to add? But that's a very different experience from most teachers who are still subject to... The head teacher telling yeah. them how they're doing. Yeah. Which isn't, you're never going to be able to get what your mission is in terms of the school and the way the pupils learn if the teachers are being managed in a totally different way. What are the things, if if you had a magic wand and you could get the things that you've done at at your school rolled out nationally, the values are obviously one. Yep. That command and control, teacher-centred 
development, mm-hmm. ownership mm-hmm. of your development. What, what are some of the other things that you wish that everybody yeah. else did that you do? Well, the value, I mean, what do the values represent? So what, there's two aspects of it. One is the commitment to a broader education, a more holistic education and the genuine commitment to seeing that through. So the thing, so one part of the values is the fact, you know, how we actively teach them. They have lessons, in personal excellence lessons. And we've developed an assessment framework, kind of competency-based assessment. So how do we actually see that I'm making progress in my ability to persevere, mm-hmm. which is quite sophisticated. And in terms of, you know, you talk about metrics. As a pupil in your school, how do I know that I'm developing perseverance? Well, you have a personal excellence journey book, uh-huh. which has the characters, of course, in it. And for each of the values, uh, there is a progressive set of statements, which are increasingly difficult uh, uh, around what it means to show perseverance. Because very often, actually, value stuff in schools, possibly in other organisations as well, becomes binary. I'm either showing perseverance or I'm not showing perseverance, which is, of course, not lacks nuance because there are varying degrees so if you think about it from the point of view of a three-year-old who started in the nursery what's the first steps in showing perseverance to be able to get to a point where as an eight or nine or ten year old I can repeatedly redraft my work and take the feedback and go back to the drawing board as we as adults have to do and say okay I need to rethink I'm going to rewrite that that takes a level of resilience and perseverance which is quite sophisticated what does that start off looking like you know, I give it another go when I failed. I, I can manage my feelings when I ha- when I can't do something or I found it hard, yeah. and I can understand and recognise and manage my own feeling of disappointment or whatever. And then, what's the next step? Is you know, being able to give it another go, being able to hear feedback in a positive way and take that on board, go back to something uh-huh. and have another go. There's stages, aren't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, to that. And, so, and you're right, and often in organisations, even those that have got values, that nuance is not there. I've seen it done very well in a number of organisations, but mm. mostly mostly not. Well, I think it's really interesting to move beyond the binary mm. in it. Uh, you know, you can take that for any of them. You know, showing compassion is very basically, you know, can I sort of listen well? That's yep. one part of showing compassion, isn't it? Can I listen well without putting in my own information? You know, through to can I can I really show sensitivity and understanding cultural differences even when our cultures kind of uh, sometimes are odds with each other at a sort of theological level potentially so yeah. it's quite sophisticated you know there's, there's degrees of it so yeah. that's so that's to answer your question yeah by putting those metrics around it and developing our you know it's not it's not scientifically validated but it is got a lot of thought to it and it's got rigor to it in our own internal kind of um, benchmarking by putting a metric to it, add some value to it. Mm-hmm. Because we can talk about the extent to which our pupils make progress with personal excellence in the same way we can talk about academic excellence. So as a sector, if we were taking more seriously the broader range of outcomes that we think are important to go right back to the very beginning, what yes. do employers want? What do you want when you're looking for a graduate or a school leaver coming into the business? You know, you want people who can think, who can be proactive, who can research intelligently who can find stuff out who can get on with people who can manage themselves if we take that some of those core skills back into school and start to think well what's the implications of that for how what we teach yes and how we teach it yes then we're starting to have some more meaningful conversations yes Uh, if you went back in time 
What would you do differently? Oh, good question. One one thing I would say is I would take I would have taken more photos of Surrey Square when I first arrived because I haven't got many and people don't believe the stories. So yeah, they'd be a bit about capturing the journey a bit more yeah. along the way. I've really tried to live without regrets. So uh-huh. I've learnt an untold amount along the journey, but I don't, I don't there's not, not that many things I'd go back okay. and, and change. There's no rewind button, we can't go back and undo it, but how do we sort it out and how do we learn something from it going forwards? And how do you celebrate success? Personally or in the school, do you mean? Either. I just, how I do just, I celebrate success? I, it was, I was only struck because often when people who aren't thinking about looking backwards at how far we've come mm. often find yeah. celebrating success along the yeah. journey difficult too and I just wondered whether no I think it's interesting we we literally had especially in the early days we had a we called it a success book at the time success one of the values it would now be our excellence book we had a sort of a two book and I would stick in in the you know in the dark days of grindingly moving the school forward anything positive that happened would kind of print a picture and write a bit up and stick it in and it was this success but that sat in the kind of foyer of these are all the great things that are happening so I think organisationally from a leadership perspective I've been good at telling that story and celebrating the small stuff and celebrating the journey of success I think you know internally do I recognise my achievements and enjoy what I have achieved I think yes I do I recognise my achievements and I know that only I know what it's taken to do what I've done. You know, other people around me know that to some extent, but yeah. I kind of know that internally that I know what I've done and what we've achieved. Does that mean it's always easy being me and I'm, you know, not constantly thinking about what we can do better and what I can do next? And I think you know the answer. <laughs> um, if people were going to read one book mm. what's your book oh, recommendation difficult question because lots of things so again you can have more than couple, one book. couple of it's i mean and I don't, they don't always need the book the whole book reading but i love daniel pink in terms of empowerment the book drive purpose mastery and autonomy that's really powerful intrinsic motivation and the the need for all those three things that sits with me a lot Carl Rogers on Becoming a Person, which is a, um, he's a person-centred psychotherapist, a client, which led to kind of client-centred coaching approaches, which is a massive advocate of and practitioner within, which is again about, which is an empowerment model. And the last thing, because it's the end of our mission statement, everyone, every day, the everyday bit, I love Atul Gawande better, which um, he's an American surgeon and he talks about one particular piece of work he did where he saved you know, hundreds of millions of dollars and decreased reinfection rates by this extraordinary amount by this one intervention, which was getting everybody to wash their hands in the way they should do every single time. So that kind of diligence piece of every day, do it every day. And I think, you know, we know what works for our children. If we do that with our best hearts every day, Nobody can ask anything else from us. Fantastic. Liz, if people want to come and visit the school, can they come and They visit? certainly can. And how do they get a hold of you to... Do they Webs- have to get a hold of you to do that? What? Website, you know, Surrey Square website, find us on Twitter or come via you and yeah, I'm, I'm not that difficult to find. Fab. <laughs> Liz, thank you very much indeed. You're welcome. <laughs>